I back up my text a lot with emojis just to indicate tone because I find it so difficult to to read tone from text. Boundaries is something I think about a lot writing memoir when especially writing memoir about illness. There's also a bit of policing in terms of what some people sometimes mm. think of as political correctness, but it's actually you advocating Definitely. for yourself and empowering yourself. To give us that space is to ask. I'm Izzy roberts Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the Digital Writers' Festival podcast. The Digital Writers' Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling, accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable, and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the World Wide Web. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording today on the occupied lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. When in an ableist society, one's access and participation in IRL spaces may be limited and fraught, what possibilities can the virtual sphere provide? Welcome to the Digital Writers Fest podcast. I'm Robin M. Eames, and I'm a disabled poet and historian. My name is Cubby. My pen name is C.B. Marco. And before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that I am a writer of color and a migrant, and I live on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. They are our first storytellers, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, My name is Gemma Mahadio, and I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I'm a writer, a poet, and occasionally a musician. I'm Katerina. I'm a memoir writer uh, based in Adelaide, uh, living with functional neurological disorder. I'm currently recording on Ghana country, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Great. So in this episode, we'll be discussing our relationships with disability, chronic illness, and creative practices in the virtual realm. We're going to have a conversation about the politics of visibility and invisibility, the body, freedom, and autonomy online. Um, So I guess I'll just like ask you folks some questions and we'll see how we go. Um, The first thing I wanted to ask all of you is whether you feel physically or socially isolated by chronic illness or disability. I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. So perhaps with my immediate family, I do feel that Um, having chronic invisible illnesses is quite isolating but feel that I have a community online um, that does 
help to negate some of that? Yeah, I definitely agree that it's a mixed um, bag because while fatigue and uh, really limits my ability uh, to socialise in certain situations, it has also empowered me to reach out to different communities and meet different people uh, with similar lives to my own and different in many profound ways, and that has been very rewarding. Um. For me, as a person of color, um, it's rather difficult to first uh, tell about my disability because it's invisible. So I've got mental health issues. And recently I've been diagnosed with hard of hearing. So among uh, communities of color, writers of color in a group, nobody wants to believe me. It's like are you disabled enough? That's the question. And there's always that doubt in their eyes. So to prove that you're disabled because mine is invisible, um, it's, or even discussing it at, at least is, um, it's quite daunting. And it's also some groups find it as a taboo in some communities or, yeah, it, it's 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 a uh, intersection of of two things. Not just because we're people of color, but we've also got disability on top, and disability that's invisible. Uh, yeah, that's just so many layers there for me. So yeah, kind of difficult. Hubby, do you find with that doubt that you have trouble sort of getting people to meet you where you are? because they don't really understand like your access needs? Yes, I think there's this level of ableism um, among uh, the culture of people of color. Uh, the discussion, just, just to discuss about disability, um, fortunately, some who are very religious or very traditional or superstitious, they think it's bad karma. It is of... Um, uh, you're being punished by the omnipotent one, your 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 deity, your god, and there's already that um, barrier already. Um, when you you tell them that you've got this and this, so behind your backs, it's kind of like it's seen yeah. as like a moral failing as yeah. opposed to just part of your situation. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's that's so interesting because that's actually like um there are really, really old ideas like going back to sort of ancient Greece and Rome that, that disability was some kind of sign of divine disfavor. Wow. And it's interesting that that's something that's like survived in some communities in some way. Cause I think we have a lot of inherited prejudice that we don't really understand the origins of and that we tend to like attach to people rather than to societies. Yeah, actually, I w just wanted to add to Cubby's discussion, so I probably should have mentioned that I'm also a queer person of colour and both my parents actually work in pub or used to work, they retired last um, just this year and last year, work with... Um, acute psychiatric and psychogeriatric um, healthcare. And it's, it's really 
different the level of ableism because I think perhaps for them it would be easier to accept if I had a more visible illness, if it was more physiological based. But there's this, um, I guess with chronic mental health issues, there's always this sense of you can still possibly get better or... um, you know, you've been robbed of the decades that you've been unable. You're very aware of the fact that you're unable, but there aren't necessarily concessions made for that. Hmm. I always find it so interesting, the kind of clash between, like, visible and invisible disabilities because um, in some ways... A lot of my disabilities are very visible. I'm a wheelchair user, but at the same time, like I still get the kind of people going like, oh, you're too young to be disabled. Like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Nothing's wrong with you. Um, like the same kind of thing that I got like before I was a wheelchair user. And it's it's really interesting because I think I had a lot of assumptions about um, like the way that people read disability and it's like, um, regardless of kind of how how visible things are, there's always that doubt still, especially if you're young, I think, um, because people just have like odd, odd conceptions about disability and how disability is supposed to, to manifest in their minds. Um, so when it comes to kind of isolation and disability, um, do you find that it's primarily like other people's attitudes or like the kind of built environment around you or like kind of internal things like like pain or fatigue or anxiety or a combination of all of the above? For me, it's definitely a combination of all of the above. Physical spaces are such a part of navigating the world and to feel isolated by that uh, is incredibly difficult to manage and it does play into uh, anxiety. I have generalised anxiety disorder but that is fueled a lot by navigating space um, and being scared if I'm in this space will this provoke a seizure and If I'm in this space with people I don't know, how will that stigma uh, affect my safety when I'm not able to look after myself physically in that state? So it's definitely a tricky mix of those three for me, navigating the world. I'd be interested to hear what everyone else experiences. Um, I'm actually taking medication for my mental health issues uh, for a couple of years, few years now. Um, I've got, I have to take medication before stepping out of the house just to manage um, the level of anxiety, especially when you're in a writing community, you need to meet, uh, or a writing event, you get to mingle um, with other people. I can't hear them. Um, uh, or say we're, we're in a restaurant or we're in a, in a pub, we're supposed to meet there, uh, informally, I can't hear anyone. So 
it took me a while to realize I've, I had I needed devices just to hear other people. But before that, it was just, um, it, yeah, it, it was quite very stressful. So, yeah, medication is very important when you're in a um, writing community and you need to meet with other people in a writing event. Mm, my hearing is fine, but my audio processing is really dodgy. And, like, I definitely get that, like, especially in crowds. And it's just so much harder to keep track of, like, when multiple people are speaking um, and if there's like a lot of sensory input in the environment like if it's just like bright or crowded and it means that like people I think people often sort of jump to assuming that you're just like being rude or uninterested or not paying attention and that itself is really stressful because like I don't know how to explain like do I disclose before I meet every single new person like I'm not being rude I just can't understand what you're saying at all but yeah it's it's tricky it's tricky navigating social situations yeah I definitely relate to that sensory input uh if it's crowded and the lights are uh, in a certain way that interact with my brain sometimes when people are speaking to me I my brain shuts off their voice so I can't hear them at all and I find so much of it is me uh, acting to be, you know, quote, normal, trying to conceal uh, what I am experiencing because it's really hard to tell people when you first meet them about your illness. I don't want to necessarily have to do that in every new interaction is stressful enough. And it takes so much energy to kind of camouflage what's, and then you kind of feel like, well, why should I have to hide it? But then it's like having that conversation is exhausting. Yes. Um, Gemma, did you and, have any thoughts? Yeah, I, um, I guess as well, it, it feels like a combination of all those things. I've um, done things where I've completely forgotten where I've parked my car because I've parked while anxious. Mm. And that sounds really silly, but until, yeah, I'm, my memory is excellent. And um, I, I had mentioned this um, in prior conversation um, on email. I've, I've had voluntary electroconvulsive therapy for my depression. So I'm really used to note-taking, um, jogging my memory. But there are times where I've actually just lost my car because I've been in such a rush to meet up with a mate and just rushed yeah basically didn't want to tell them I was struggling but then had to tell them I was struggling because I didn't meet them in time and lost my car <laughs> if we're having difficulty like not just navigating physical spaces but but navigating in-person contact with people do online communities and social media provide forms of contact that you find difficult to access otherwise there's this podcast I always listen to, which is Garrett Podcast. They've got, they're very inclusive because they have transcription. So that's the space that, um, for me, I've always, there's this concept called interceptionality. It was um, coined by Michelle Cahill. Uh, I always mention to podcasters, do you have transcription? I can't 
understand what you're saying? Would you be able to put that transcription into your budget? So making able list spaces accessible to us for those of hard of hearing, um, we always have to interrupt and, you know, make that effort to like email. Can you please include transcription? Can you? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's one of the, for my at least advocacy for disability for hard of hearing. That That's my space where I want to, um, yeah, for, for uh, digital spaces. I find it's always such a relief when there's captions on, on videos um, because it just makes it like so, you know, it's kind of impossible to engage otherwise. Um, could you, what was the, I didn't catch the phrase that you mentioned was coined by Michelle Cahill. Um, it, they call it interceptionality. So oh, um, do you, I think it was, yeah. I think you mean Kimberly Crenshaw? No, that's uh, intersectionality. So interceptionality. Interception, right, sorry, audio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's her concept. We could Google, Google it. Um, it's a hashtag on mascara review. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, 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 it's like um, cutting into spaces. For me, it's on the ableism side that we could, yeah, include us in into the narrative or into the spaces not just as a, a writer of color but you know for 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 disabled individuals as well for example um in Footscray arts when we have an event is it accessible for wheelchair we have to ask that or do we will we include or like for example in melbourne writers festival i've asked for can you include please an auslan interpreter so that other people could also attend the event so other people who are hard of hearing or deaf so make places accessible for everyone Mm -hmm. so is it about like intercepting or disrupting like the the space Yes, yes. Um, making that effort to um, doing the the legwork, the the paperwork, or yeah, making those emails, those calls. You call them out on spaces like social media, like use the hashtag, like um, let's say representation matters, inclusion, all means all. So there are hashtags in social media that were we could insert ourselves. And yes, show that hey, we're part of this the story, we're part of the narrative, not just as people of color, but also people who are disabled. I just find it such a relief when when like other people do that asking because um for myself, like having to you know, being invited to things and then having to always ask, like, is the venue wheelchair accessible? Like, does it have stairs? Are the doors wide enough for me to get through like it's really tiring and it's just like this constant reminder that mm-hmm. that like I feel like I don't really belong in those spaces to begin with or like they weren't built with me in mind or like the people um inviting me like to to a space that's inaccessible I always I'm just like I don't know what you want from me here like is this like am I being expected to to actually show up or you know, and when other people do that asking, it's just, 
it takes all that expectation off because a lot of the time as well like when people respond they're really defensive like they're like oh the building's old we can't do anything about it and I'm like I don't need I just need a yes or no like I understand that a lot of spaces are inaccessible I just need to to have a yes or no I don't want to have a big protracted conversation about it yeah it's a lot of labor to continually ask and often not receive replies in my experience Mm or responses to complaints and when an aspect of your illness is fatigue it becomes overwhelming and you do want to retreat uh, to your own space which you know is safe and that's why online spaces can be so important. Uh, Equally they can be inaccessible in certain ways but they also have the opportunity of being made by people with chronic illness, with disability, so by people who understand what it's like to be in a certain body. Yeah, well, I think we can curate our online spaces a bit more, whereas when it comes to kind of physical spaces, I find that I'm really reluctant to to go places that I haven't been before because I don't know if there's going to be like a step or a ledge or a really steep hill or a really narrow door or like carpet that's really difficult to, to get over. Like, and, and all of those... Um, kind of unknown factors just like increase my anxiety and it means that like I you know the the process of going somewhere new just involves so much more kind of thinking and anticipating and sometimes like having to call up to to ask about details of the the venue whereas online spaces it's like you know what you're you know what you're dealing with Mm. I, st- I still can't believe how much of it is not default. Um, even when spaces are accessible, it might not necessarily mean you can get mm. to the loo with dignity, which um, is is really astounding. Oh, my gosh. Places are so shameless about, like, they'll say they're accessible then there just <clears> won't <throat> be an accessible toilet. And it's like, what are you – what? what? <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't count. It doesn't count if we can't piss. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you find that online communities are significant in your social life then because of all of this? I think it's definitely pushed me to be more proactive in pushing some of my levels of comfort that that are a bit more, um, I guess, that I can negotiate with. If I didn't um, I guess if I didn't interact with, for instance, as many Melbourne-based writers online or on Twitter, I might not make the effort to go to a festival and meet people who are actually interested in each other's work, which um, is, um, I guess, again, that, that I also feel like that's quite crucial to mental health um, actually knowing that there are people out there who not just support your work but really enjoy it. Yeah, and, like, when you kind of start interacting with people online or, like, on Twitter, it's, like, an extra kind of you're like, oh, well, it's stressful going out in person, but I get to meet these people that I've been talking to and that have such interesting thoughts about, like, um, you know, poetry or, or speculative fiction or archival work. Yeah, definitely. 
but sometimes um digital spaces can be overwhelming as well mm -hmm. um for me at least um people suddenly go quiet in a conversation when you insert yourself and say hey how about you include this this and this and uh-uh the, the the conversation already abrupts uh it ends abruptly so um there are days when i'm very anxious or there's yeah i'm not in a great headspace i really have to deactivate my twitter account sometimes i rather uh talk to online spaces on a they call it uh the chat the dm chat privately individually because i can't handle a group discussion uh it's quite confronting but it yeah but sometimes it's the one-on-one -on -one private conversations when you can't meet up with a person like with Gemma Gemma and I would like chat on on online but sometimes it's it's dm yep yep so sometimes it's manageable that way and rather than uh, yeah. sorry and and online like all the kind of cues and protocols are really different as well and like even the way that people phrase things or use like emojis like i find that i back up my text a lot with emojis just to indicate tone because i find it so difficult to to read tone from text yeah i'm the same i don't i i want to convey that if i'm saying something or cheer, cheerfully or in a positive way overuse exclamation marks oh or smiley faces and like, in professional context it's so stressful because i'm like i can't use emojis in an email in a professional context but how are they gonna know i'm not being really like blunt and rude like i don't and so it's just exclamation marks but then every sentence has an exclamation mark and i just look really excitable yeah. <laughs> oh so i was just going to say it's um it's a shame that we still separate personal and professional when mm. we're we're not machines. At the same time, I think we should be allowed yeah, to have definitely. emotions um, in professional communication. Definitely. Although sometimes it is nice to kind of have some barriers between like your social life and your work life, and like when all of your interactions are online, it can make it hard to to sustain those boundaries. Katarina, yep. did you have any thoughts there? Yeah, definitely boundaries is something I think about a lot writing memoir when especially writing memoir about illness. Often I'm writing something that a lot of my friends or the people I interact with daily don't know. And I suppose there's a comfort within that in that professional writing space perhaps if I'm you know, speaking here, people know I am ill and having to be open about that is much easier in these online writing spaces than it is every day. Yeah. Although the boundaries do get very murky. Sometimes, uh, yeah, it feels like I'm writing up my own medical vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always wonder as well, like, when I'm kind of speaking publicly about like like disability or healthcare or like I'm criticizing like inadequate healthcare and then I'm like 
if I'm doing this in public spaces, like, what if my doctors read this? Like, is this going to compromise? Is this going to further compromise my inadequate healthcare? Like, <laughs> yeah. If my uh, psychologist says something really poignant, can I write it down and use it in an essay? Or is that <laughs> does the confidentiality go both ways? Mm. Um. So do. Do any of you use like accessibility software, like screen reading software, dictation software, or like um, kind of night mode, anything like that? Um, I don't really, but sometimes if I can't attend events, I'll watch it um, if it's live streaming. Mm. That's super useful. Um, Yeah, particularly if travel um, commuting is... I often forget this as someone with chronic depression that um, it can't. You, you do actually mm-hmm. also get physically exhausted mm. quicker than yeah, um, and like restful sleep than is other a people as well. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> sleep. Oh gosh, sleep is so sexy. <laughs> Good sleep is really sexy. <laughs> um. There's webinars when, yeah, I can't go outside or I can't even attend uh, things. That's very helpful. Um, you could just watch. You don't need to interact. You just, yeah, learn. I just, uh, an hour before we were on, I was at attending uh, Writers Victoria's webinar on writing. So that was very helpful. Um, there are apps, the, the one that I have for listening for podcasts when it's because some, uh, uh, podcasts don't have, uh, transcripts, you could slower the pace of the people talking. So instead of a hundred percent fast, uh, regular speech, I have to lower it down to 80% so I could understand them or else everything's just sounds so garbled to me. Yeah, mm. I mean, I find webinars so useful because um, from my side of things, I kind of, I never know until the day of if I'm going to be like capable of leaving the house. Like if I have kind of a, a really bad dislocation or something or if something floods up or just my fatigue or potato. <laughs> or if my fatigue or pain is, is flaring up, um, <laughs> sometimes it just gets to the day of and I'm like, nope. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like sometimes <laughs> I worry that people see like live streaming or webinars as like an alternative, as an alternative to actually providing accessible venues. <laughs> like, oh, it's okay if you can't get in because we're streaming <laughs> it. And then I'm like, no, it's not okay. <laughs> Yeah, talking about uh, webinars, that's something that's really important to me, um, which I run through Writer's Block. We have uh, webinars. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't have a physical space, so that was something I created, thinking really of people like me who can't, who live with fatigue, who don't know how their body's going to be on that certain day. And uh, who need to, who want to access uh, writing tools because writing's a really helpful way to talk about uh, living with illness and disability. Uh, in terms of apps, I also use 
like a red wash on my screen that uh, takes out the brightness because I find brightness can really mm. uh, make those visual sensations. It can bring on uh, seizures and especially uh, now with phones, being able to flick through things so quickly can really uh, do funny things to my brain. So that's been helpful. Um, it's called Rufus, if anyone was wondering. Ah, interesting. Because I, I like, I have photosensitivity, and I like get migraines and stuff. So, mm-hmm. like, definitely get that kind of bright, bright screens can be a problem. Um, I use uh, Flux on my computer and like Night Mode on on Twitter, just like all the time, not just at night. And like, um, you know, light text on dark backgrounds is a lot easier for me to read without like getting kind of headachey mm-hmm. and nauseous, and yeah, um, I'm the same. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's it's hard because when like looking at a bright screen is bad for you, but then you spend so much time online or you using online spaces. Um, I ended up dictating most of my honors thesis um, to my computer through like dictation software, not just because like typing is difficult for me, but but because I just can't look at a screen for that long. Mm, yeah, I like to handwrite. It helps. Oh, no, yeah, I. Ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I use Flux as well. Um, it mm. really helps with winding down yeah. because of the um, the nighttime. It turns off a certain brightness or spectrum of colors, and then yeah, they're just warmer. Yeah, it's um it, the the blue light is what it turns off because your brain kind of sees that and thinks it's daylight and thinks like, well, we're staying awake because it's daylight. Um and obviously like now with kind of the technology that we have, like our brains haven't quite caught up to it. Um but yeah, like I I do find that like especially when illness and disability are involved, there are a lot of hacks. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then at the same time, like, there are, there are problems. Um, and, like, Twitter now has – you can add image descriptions to things, which is excellent because it means that when screen reading software is trying to kind of read the page, like, for someone who's, you know, uh, blind or, or partially sighted or just isn't using their screen for whatever reason, um, it means that, like – rather than just having these chunks of info that are just blank, like you can add a description and like let people know what's actually going on. Um, but they're optional. You have to opt in to adding them. So a lot of people don't even know it's there. And like Facebook doesn't have anything like that. So a lot of people just kind of add manually like image descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get, I, I run a Facebook page and I get a lot of people going like, well, what's that? what's the image description for like that's and they think it's kind of a bit creepy because I'll be like if I've got a picture of myself and I add like Robin a white wheelchair user who's smiling and wearing like red boots or something and then people like oh why you they get very anxious about having described myself as white because (laughs) um but also they just kind of think it's weird to to describe elements of the image like that I'm smiling or that I'm a wheelchair user and then they feel the need to insist that they see me as a person and not a wheelchair user and I'm like can I be both (laughs) (laughs) but um just because people don't know what the purpose of that is 
it's it's interesting how how kind of defensive and anxious people get when they encounter people using online spaces in a way that they're not familiar with. Yeah, um, there's also a bit of policing in terms of what some people sometimes mm. think of as political correctness, but it's actually you know, advocating Definitely. for yourself and empowering yourself. I mean, it's just like you were saying about the wheelchair. It's a fact. It's part of your existence. Yeah, um, and especially you're describing something, especially not, when it's relevant yeah, to it's the post. Like if I'm writing a post about like you know, interactions I've had as a wheelchair user, like if someone is blind and and reading the post through screen reading software, if the context I've given to the post is that I'm a wheelchair user and you can tell that from the image, if they haven't got the context of the image, then that's why I'm writing the description. But people kind of get very funny about like acknowledging things and like saying, you know, describing ourselves as disabled. Um, And it's... It's odd, I think, because it's another of those things where, for me, it's that that weird simultaneous space of like hyper visibility and invisibility because people don't want to think about it and they don't want to talk about it. But like um, when it's something that's kind of such a huge visible facet yeah. of your existence, like often for me, it's the first thing people ask about when I meet them in person. Like before even asking for my name, they're like, "What's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "That's nice. <laughs> I don't know, lots of things." <laughs> Um, but yeah. And, but then like in online spaces, it's odd because not having that, I'm like, well, do I, do I disclose about being disabled and like in person people kind of, that is one thing that like, at least, you know, they understand that I'm disabled, although they have a lot of misconceptions about what that means, but online it's like, I know other people who are wheelchair users struggle a lot with online dating and, and wondering whether to kind of attach images of themselves whether wheelchair is visible or not. And it's like, it's really hard to take a selfie where your wheelchair is visible. You have to like lean really far out. Um, but it means that you have to make these weird decisions about like whether you're going to sort of actively hide it or or not actively hide it but feel like people are going to think that you're hiding it um and it means that like people tend to just have a lot more assumptions about like what kind of the default is when you're interacting with someone online and they don't have any of that information attached from Mm. interacting with you in person i um i guess my experience in terms of disclosure is a bit unusual because I I actually had an ex who found out that I was having voluntary um, ECT for the first time and he told a lot of our mutual friends um, that we had met through Twitter and one of the reasons I decided to be honest about just how acute and chronic um, my depression could get was because I figured it was going to be better and less stressful for me in the long run Mm. having people know from me rather than having them talk behind my back about apparently how crazy I was. And it was difficult because I didn't get to, I didn't get to tell people on my own terms. I basically had to tell them, no, look, I, I understand that you think there's a lot of stigma attached to this and it's part of my realities. There's not really much I can do about that. 
Yeah, I think people expect us to be ashamed in a way that sometimes we aren't. And then if we're not ashamed or if even we're we're proud in some way, whatever that means for us, and often it just means like that we're embracing the life that we have, um, people get very funny about it. Yep, I've seen people roll their eyes at us when we ask for space to give us this inclusion. There's that hashtag, which I often use because I advocate on social media as well, on Twitter most of the time. That's, yeah, to give us that space is to ask. Uh, it's kind of difficult. And then when you they do nudge, you know, they do move for us, give us that space. It's reluctant. Mm-hmm. They, um, it's, yep, they don't even believe you. But yeah, okay, we give you your space. Um, in a kind of, you have to be grateful oh, yeah. we gave you space. <laughs> so, oh. Uh, so it's um, a bit of a double whammy for us who are, um, people of color and disabled um and by the way i just want to do a shout out to a couple of friends from the west side of melbourne um colleen vetuna and hannah walsh from west from footscray arts they yeah they usually speak with them uh online or yeah or yeah and they help me a lot as well you know discussing about disability so yep, they're more they're also online advocates, um, creating that space for for artists of color who are disabled. I think often online spaces are some of the only spaces where we kind of can platform each other, platform like voices that are usually like excluded or, or underrepresented. And um, I definitely like it definitely resonates you speaking about like that like people just being like annoyed or condescending when you bring up access issues and it's like people act like we're troublemakers for bringing it up and it's like well no like the the problem was already there like do you want us just to never mention it and then never be able to show up at all um Katerina you wrote (laughs) I was just gonna ask about you wrote an essay recently in Overland that was excellent about um an art exhibition that used like strobing high frequency flashing and made that space inaccessible. And it just sounded like your interaction with them trying to point that out was so frustrating. Yeah, because I think in that interaction, in bringing it up, I didn't want an apology because I had, um, a seizure because of that strobing, but I wanted to be heard Mm. and I didn't, I was met with like looks like I was a troublemaker and like uh, I was disturbing something positive that was trying to be made by my presence and that was difficult and I felt very frustrated about it for a while but writing about it really helped Mm. work through the idea of uh, being present and it came to a disclosure for me too because I was with a friend who I hadn't really talked about my illness uh, with because I 
hadn't wanted to. And I felt uh, quite resentful that because um, the gallery space hadn't flagged that there would be strobing in a room I entered um, that I had to then disclose to a friend while experiencing a lot of seizure symptoms. So that was frustrating and navigating those spaces can be very difficult, but there is a lot of power in being heard as a result of that too. Yeah, and like the process of writing about this kind of thing can be cathartic in itself. And I think often um, it's it's good because it means that we get to reach out to the people who are interested in changing um, and it can kind of lessen that sense of just like hopelessness, like bashing your head against a brick wall, trying to like get people to listen. Um, and especially when it's something like strobing, I just don't understand it. It's so dangerous. Like seizures can be fatal and I don't understand why mm. the reaction would ever be defensiveness rather than like, oh my goodness, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sure. Um, so Katarina, you wrote an essay in Overland recently about an experience where you were at an art gallery and one of the exhibitions used strobing or high frequency flashing lights. And it sounded like the experience of speaking to them about it was really frustrating. Yes. Um, so there were a number of, uh, visual uh, problems I had at that gallery and there wasn't uh, adequate warnings uh, into that space and it was difficult for me uh, upon entering that space because it did provoke a seizure and when trying to explain that it felt as though I was a disruption rather than somebody being heard and I was very conscious when flagging this that I wasn't expecting an apology but I wanted to be heard and I wanted for it not to happen again to someone else. Um, and then when bringing that up, I was met with blank looks which made it very difficult but being able to write about it was very empowering for me because it was reclaiming my voice in that space and at the same time reaching out to people who've experienced similar things and asking better of public spaces. Mm. I mean, like, I find that it's a lot less kind of exhausting and, like, personally kind of fraught to to challenge people about things that aren't the things that I experience or that I need like I find it easier to talk to a space about hiring Auslan interpreters mm. because that's not something that I personally like you know that's not something that would prevent me from accessing a space whereas talking to people about wheelchair accessibility I just get so like anxious and upset and tired about it because it's like just this constant reminder of like you don't belong, you shouldn't be here, this space isn't for you. Um, whereas on other people's behalf, I can just get kind of righteous about it. But for me, I'm like, oh, maybe I don't belong. <laughs> I think also it's definitely a way of acknowledging that in some form we do have privileges in our lives mm -hmm. and we can use our voices 
to hopefully educate the next generation and destigmatize a lot of the the things that we deal with? Um, there's this program from Writers Victoria called um, Writeability, and they um, hold workshops about what not to write. What there are words that shouldn't be seen in books, and but then they still get published, especially um, for about pertaining to people uh, with intellectual disabilities. Um, apart being disabled myself with invisible disability, I've got a child with Down syndrome, so. I really, it really irks me as well. It's it, it's <laughs> frustrating to see words like moron or idiot or imbecile in in literary fiction or even in genre fiction that are published at at this very time at this this year, twenty eighteen. I still read them, see them, so. I wish that writers Victoria would give out that workshop to, or access Victoria or access arts, give out that kind of workshop to every writer or editor and stop writing um, words that demean dis- disabled people. Yeah. I mean, so many of the words that we use as insults, are based in disability or like words that, you know, like the ones you mentioned that all used to be diagnostic terms. And I think a lot of people don't, don't really realize or don't really kind of unravel what they're saying when like they'll say something that's, you know, that's invoking intellectual disability or cognitive disability or mental illness. And it's like, instead you can just say that someone's ignorant or oblivious or a bigot like you don't have to use disability to insult people yeah Yeah. I'm surprised by how often people use labels of illness as self self descriptions in flippant ways uh one I hear all the time is oh uh I'm really OCD about uh vacuuming No, so many illnesses are used as adjectives and I encourage people to really think about how that makes people living with those illnesses feel. Yeah, describing um, ableism, describing people in what what we supposedly lack um, seems to be big in terms of insults, which... There's, I mean, um, I didn't realise how many ableist terms we use as insults until quite recently, I'm quite embarrassed to admit. Um, but yet learn, then once you start to learn about them, it sets off a process of hopefully ed- re-educating yourself. Mm. Well, I know like there were so many terms that for me just like kind of didn't ring alarm bells until they applied to me. Um, like, like people saying kind of crippling debt and I'm like, oh, don't do that. (laughs) Do not do that. Um, you don't have to make the comparison to disability to say that something's debilitating, um, or or bad. And then when we call them out, they get very upset about it or defensive. 
And then, especially if they're writers, and then I just tell them, you know, you're a writer. Use other words. There's this, you know, there's a thesaurus out there. You know, use your dictionary. Use other words. You're very creative. You could use other words. Have there been times when you felt that digital spaces and technologies were unsafe or exacerbating physical or mental illness? Yeah, definitely when I got outed as having ECT. So what had happened was my ex-partner, his stepmother had found my name on a list. Uh, She was a social worker at the time and she was working in the public sector. So I'm not really sure how she got my information from a private ward. But I was too unwell at the time to even think about legal action because that was actually pretty serious law-breaking. But, yeah, and it really sucked that I kind of had to just let that go and then wait for mutual acquaintances online to kind of either forget that I was I was that unwell or to just not care any. They would just stop caring. I, yeah, the isolation and the the number of people that just decided they didn't really want that much to oh, do wow. with me anymore yeah. because of my mental health issues, that was, that was difficult at the beginning. I can imagine I feel that when I've disclosed certain parts of my illness to people that, uh, especially mental illness, uh, it scares people. And that's really difficult to live with when in those moments you want support and connection. Yeah. Um, I think people are scared as well because they, mental illness is not something that they can instantly solve. Although I can't think of anything physical that can necessarily be solved as such. Um, And it is perhaps more difficult to truly care. It's different when you say that you care, but then when you actually ask someone if how how they are, um, or even if 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 someone's if someone if I tell my best mate that I'm having a really shit day because I've slept really badly the last few days, just him texting me and asking. Um, what do you need? Is there anything I can do? It just, it helps so much because there's just this relief of not having to prove that you've done your best to be better or stay well or functional. And um, yeah, I think that's one one thing that um, digital spaces do also help with. But sometimes the silence around that can also be quite disheartening. I agree with you. I concur because um, once they know that you uh, have a disability, they uh, it's isolation. It's both inclusion and isolation at the same time um, to insert yourself in the discussion and they don't want to acknowledge you because of what you they know that you have like okay and then they'll go I'll pray for you uh are you cured yet and um what are the other things that they'll tell me uh are you better today 
when are you going to get well? Like, oh, good Lord. Um, yeah, the, those are the things. Oh, I, I'll send prayers to you, like, that your your mental illness will be better and you'll be cured. Or, like, my mother-in-law even told, you know, us that, oh, we'll pray rosaries for you because for the Down syndrome will go away. Like, no, mm. no, that's how it goes, people. <laughs> So, um, yes, online spaces can be both um, inclusion. Very, um, we we get the space that we want. We get um, that space, uh, but sometimes it also so it's a half half thing. <laughs> also depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, I've also found um, so yeah spaces to be really helpful in really talking about in detail things that I can't necessarily talk to uh, the people around me about, like medication side effects that doctors like to say, no, nobody experiences that. But if I'm in an online community and there are people there who are experiencing similar side effects, then it feels very uh, validating. And just talking about those intricacies can be really uh, such a blessing. That's so true. The um, Sometimes the treatments can be differently debilitating in their side effects. Yes. And it can be quite lonely not having people to share that with. Yeah, and to feel heard uh, to talk about those side effects is, uh, yeah, incredibly validating. Yeah. What advice would you give to younger emerging disabled and chronically ill writers like regarding digital spaces? Mm. Okay, for me it would be if you're an emerging writer like myself, constantly ask for space. I know it's 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 frustrating, exhausting. It's a journey, it's a long battle, but we have to do that and you intercept and ask for those spaces. Um, if in terms of technology, if there is, you, you need the technology to have the space, if there are grants out there that would help us do the work that we need to do, I hope there is. There's NDIS, but unfortunately not all of our, I don't know how uh, NDIS would work in our area because it hasn't rolled out yet. That's that's called the National Disability Insurance Scheme for those who are listening outside of Australia. So, um, yeah, it's it's a long journey. And to have this space with digital writers is a good step. It's a beginning. I hope other producers, other programmers would give us the space as well. I'd say to emerging writers that identify as disabled to not be ashamed of stating what your access requirements are mm. and your voice is valuable. Um, no one will have the perspective that you do. So it's, it is, it's going to be really hard. But, yeah, have faith that you deserve to be um, heard and producing the work that you're producing. Don't be ashamed about how little or how much you're producing because 
personally, I think health should come first before creativity and you will produce your best stuff when you feel good about yourself and feel healthy. Took me a long time to learn that one. Yeah. And so, yeah, don't, don't be ashamed of having to step back also from online spaces or real life spaces if that's going to be better for your health because it's, it is going to be, it might look difficult to other people, but you're not being difficult looking after yourself. Yeah, for me, I would say take the time to find what works for you. Don't rush in creating your work. Like you said, Gemma, be generous to yourself. Uh, Know that there are communities out there for you, even if you feel as though your situation or your illness or experience of disability is um, complex or a little different, there are people out there for you and there's art out there for you to both experience and to make. I suppose my own advice would echo probably all of that, but also just don't try not to be discouraged when people are awful because people can be kind of awful and a lot of the time it's not even because they're being malicious, it's just because they don't understand. And and a lot of the time it can it can feel like all we should need to have our needs met is to be able to be heard, but sometimes you need people to be to be willing to listen. Um and it's not your fault if they don't. It's not your fault if if space is inaccessible for you. If you can't access a space, it's not on you. It's it's not a reflection on you. It's all right if your needs are different to other people's. And it's up to society to, to create spaces that everyone can use and interact with each other in. It's not your responsibility. But at the same time, it can be so powerful to, to reach out to other people, like both people who, who don't experience the things that you're experiencing and, and the people who do um, because we can't understand each other until, we, until we're talking to each other and listening to each other and and it's important as well like not just to to talk but to listen and and try to um try to keep in mind that that everyone everyone has different needs and we'd be better off i think if we could approach interaction in the hope that everyone can get their needs met as much as possible The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. And you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. Find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. 
This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Thank you.